Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Greg Wells, and this is my podcast. I'm a scientist, a physiologist, an author, and I love exploring how to live a high-performance life. In my books, my presentations, and this podcast, I am doing my best to translate hard science and powerful experiences into actionable, effective life performance strategies. Using the latest research on the brain and the body, this podcast will show you simple but transformative strategies that boost mental and physical health, advance careers, and upgrade lives. I am committed to changing one life at a time for the better. I want to focus on health, happiness, and performance, and I call my mission the billion person problem. And I don't kid myself that I'm going to reach a billion people, but that's the dream and the space where my passion, my expertise, and my practices all come together. My passion is to help people live healthier and more impactful lives. My expertise lies in the research that I both try to conduct and engage in for a living. And my practice is devoted to providing evidence-based insights and strategies that make it possible to achieve personal and professional success. And that is what this podcast is all about. I hope that you love the show and it makes a big difference in your life. Let me know what you think on Twitter at Dr. Greg Wells. And without any further delays, let's dive into this episode of the Dr. Greg Wells podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Great to be with you. Today, we have a really cool interview with my friend Kunal Gupta. Now, Kunal started a company about 10 years ago called Polar Mobile. That company has expanded and grown uh, into a global uh, technology company. And it's interesting to see that as the company has grown, Kunal has as well. And Kunal has lately begun to write podcasts, uh, sorry, to write blog posts on finding focus and has really become uh, a leader in integration of mindfulness into leadership and into the workplace. So I was really excited to chat to him uh, because I think that he has an interesting perspective. He's got business credentials that are tremendous, and he also has very practical uh, ideas on how to implement all of these uh, these ideas into your life. He's experimented with minimalism. He's experimented with mindful leadership, and we get into all of those topics in this conversation. So I'm really excited about it. I hope that you enjoy it. This is a, a wide-ranging conversation, a deep dive uh, into a life that's been transformed over the last decade uh, and Basically, we get a chance to speak to someone who's becoming more and more and more successful the more they work on themselves, both personally and professionally. So please enjoy this conversation with my friend, Kunal Gupta. Hey, Kunal, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we were doing some um, chatting offline and... Uh, we started to have a great conversation, so I just pushed record. So we'll just sort of, <laughs> I'll, I'll pick up with, you know, you asked me what what the one of the, some of the challenges are that, that I'm going after in my life. And one of them is the mental health epidemic. One in five, possibly one in four, maybe even one in three people have anxiety, depression. Um, and then obviously a, a subset of people have the more severe mental illnesses, schizophrenia, manic depression, personality disorders. Um, and then you spar, you, you jumped right in and said, you know, that's sort of really where, where 
um, I'm interested in what I'm interested in from a leadership perspective. So I'll throw it back to you and say, you know, what are you up to right now? What's going on? And, and what are the passions that you're interested in at the moment? Yeah, I think I think in the last couple of decades we've like we've made really good progress with physical health. Although, Greg, based on some of the stats you shared with me, that makes me question that um, there there's still there's still work to do with physical health. But I feel there's a level of understanding of the problem and of you know possible solutions for it. I think mental health we're just scratching the surface, and over the next couple of decades, these will be some of the biggest issues we face. I think a lot of the issue, other issues we see, there's a mental health theme under it as a cause versus symptoms that we often talk about. Uh, so over the last couple of years, you know, inspired by uh, my own journey, by those close to me, uh, by uh, definitely an interest in mindfulness practices. I've become really passionate about what does mental health mean for me, but now what does it mean for, for the world? And that's driving a lot of my focus and a lot of my attention, a lot of my passive, my passive thoughts. Interesting. And so if you would, just let's take a step back and talk about your professional role at Polar, just that people have context for the fact you're going down the road of learning about mental health and developing a mindfulness practice and, and writing and blogging about focus, but against the background of a highly successful entrepreneurial career. So can you tell me a little bit about the last 10 years at, at Polar and, and what you've built there? Sure, sure. So even even pre-Polar, the way um, you and I met was was through Impact, which was a, a youth entrepreneurship organization that started uh, a long time ago at a time when entrepreneurship was not cool for young people. And we played a small part in changing that and organizing conferences and competitions back when we were students. And that was a really that was a really fun chapter of my life. That was about ten years, and that overlapped with the, sec- the next chapter of my life, which was Polar. It's a business I started right out of school ten years ago, and we are a tech company that works with media publishers uh, in Canada, everybody from the Toronto Star, National Post, you know, globally, you know, Huffington Post and USA Today and Wired and GQ and uh, about eight hundred publishers around the world, and they use our software to run parts of their website. So. It's a B2B technology company um, with a couple offices around the world. I, I, I'm based out of New York technically now, although still proud Canadian and, uh, and fly around a lot. So that's, that's been polar and continue to run that. I'm the CEO of the company. In the last few years, as I've personally gotten interested in, in this space, I've started to, to deepen my mindfulness practice. Uh, I think it's really changed uh, the culture at Polar. Not intentionally, just by uh, you know osmosis, and you know I think a lot about what does it mean um, to be a mindful leader as as one aspect of my identity, and that impacts how I show up at Polar, and also other capacities where I'm in a leadership capacity or role. How did you get interested in in mindfulness? So I'll come back to the the mindful leader idea, which I really like, but. What sparked the transition? What sparked the the shift in spending more time uh, on on mindfulness? I think my, I can speak from my own experience. Hopefully, others can relate to it. Uh, you know, growing up, I, I inherited a lot of values, and I think we all do from our society, culture, religion, parents, <laughs> teachers, role models, etc. And a lot of the, the values that I'd inherited were around like work really hard, be really successful, and 
um, happiness is sitting for you on the other side or at the top of that mountain. And I practiced those values and beliefs and I worked really hard over many years. And I felt like I actually got to the top of the mountain. I crossed that finish line that I'd been working really hard to. And that was about maybe three, four years ago. And I remember this specific moment I had for me, which is my trigger, where I realized I was there in the sense that anything I said to me, anything I said that was important to me in life, I had it thanks to a lot of work and a bit of luck, uh, professionally and personally. But I realized in that moment that even though everything I said was important to me was there, I didn't actually feel any different. I didn't feel happy or, or I didn't feel successful in a way that I had projected and expected myself to feel. So that was the spark for me that, that triggered uh, curiosity to question these values and beliefs that I had been using to guide my work and my thinking and my lifestyle and my decisions and my community. And introspection and the development of self-awareness became a really useful process and it's still going on now <laughs> uh, to like inspect and study and become curious about like I've been living by this one belief does do I still believe it to be true and if it was yes I keep it if not then I say let me throw it out or let me experiment with something related or something completely different and the meditation and yoga and journaling and reading and other mindfulness practices that we you you know recognize those are all just been tools for me to like study and develop and almost in a way like choose my values versus inherit them. And it's been a super empowering process and it's never going to stop. I don't feel. And that, that, that continues to this day. Congratulations. That's really cool. How did, can you give me an example of a situation where you recognized that um, a value that you had previously held was no longer or was maybe never true for you and then you made a, a, a pivot or a shift can you give us an example of that thinking process i used to buy a lot of stuff <laughs> like a lot of no way really <laughs> a, a, lot of, a lot of stuff clothes furniture had a very nice condo like just a lot of stuff gifts uh, and I, I wasn't even sure why looking back now, I'm sure at the time I was convinced that it was going to be a source of happiness. And uh, I had this one specific moment. I was, um, we have, we have a we have business in London in, in the UK market and I go there a few times a year. And there's this one clothing brand Reese, which has now come to North America, but like seven, eight years ago um, was only in UK and maybe France. So I fell in love with the brand and every time I go to London, every few months, I would go and buy all of my clothes from that one store. I knew the manager very well. He'd give me a discount and get the tax back as a Canadian. So it's actually affordable too. And I, I wear like a lot of white dress shirts. And on one of my trips, I got back to Toronto. I was hanging up my new stock of Reese clothing. And I realized I had purchased a piece of clothing, a shirt, a white dress shirt that I owned already. And it was the exact same cut, style, size. Everything was the exact same. And if one does that intentionally, that's one thing. But to do that un unintentionally, that was 
that was a, a moment for me where I was like, oh, like, why am I doing this? And a few months later, I started to study consumerism and the history of it, saw some documentaries, read some books, had some insightful conversations. And that led me kind of changing my attitude towards stuff and adopting a pretty extreme minimalist lifestyle uh, and resetting my relationship with physical objects, which for me at that time in my journey was uh, a really important and really valuable uh, insight to have. Can you um, give me some examples of how you've actually implemented this minimalist lifestyle? I've been doing, I'm probably not nearly as um, as into it as you are, but I've been somewhat inspired by it. You know, it's two key suits, four, four dress shirts, like two sets of shoes, like very specific. So I'm making less decisions and um, I have fewer things. There's, you know, there are I was kind of inspired by hearing that, you know, the president had two blue suits and four white shirts and two different ties. There's no decisions. It's just, that's what you're wearing. But I'd love to hear more about, you know, how you've managed to construct this minimalist lifestyle. For, for, for me, what I find helpful is to challenge myself in ways that I'm not sure if I can actually do it. So the challenge I set for myself was to go six months and not buy anything physical Oh, that's cool. Interesting. And I didn't tell anybody I was doing it because I wasn't sure if I could do it. <laughs> and I, I travel a lot for business. And when I travel, I often buy my sister a gift. I don't know why. <laughs> um, so then as soon as I stopped buying her gifts, she picked up on it immediately. <laughs> uh, so then she was in the know. But no, but I didn't tell anybody else for, for six months. And uh, initially, I was pretty scared. I was like, I'm used to buying stuff and I don't know if I can do this, but that's why I'm curious to do it. So I limited my expenses to literally food, transportation, accommodation, and experiences, but nothing physical, no clothes, shoes, books, cars, gifts, like, you know, nothing physical. And it really helped me reset my relationship with stuff. Like I have a yoga mat and it has this little tear on it. And every time I would practice before this challenge, I would see it and I would think, I need to go replace it. Every time I'd travel to a new city, I would think, I need to buy my sister a little token or gift. Um, I wear sweaters during the winter and they'd always rip and tear and I'd always throw them out and buy new ones. All of that changed. Like I started to fix my own sweaters and I've learned to accept the tear in my yoga mat. And I've treated stuff with a lot more respect. Uh, so that was a very, very important exercise for me, experiment. I went longer than six months because it was really juicy and I was still learning. So I actually ended up doing that for two years. And at the end of the two years, I stopped the experiment, not because I needed anything, but because it was no longer juicy. It was just part of me and, and my, my lifestyle. So that was one thing. I uh, I went nomadic in the sense that I didn't have a dedicated place for three years as an experiment, um, which I was able to manage through friends, families, and um, a lot of kindness from others as an experiment again. And uh, I'm experimenting with a few other things right now, which I'm not ready to share because they're still <laughs> they're still in the works. We'll do that. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll we'll regroup in a year and see, or maybe three years and see where you're at with some other stuff. That's great, but that's really interesting. You said um, experiences and stuff, and I've been playing a lot lately with 
buying experiences, not things, spending money on having an incredible magical moment, not necessarily buying a new couch, for example. Um, amazing travel experiences for my kids versus, um, you know, something that is a object that we would put in our house and we need some stuff in our, my house, no question. But, uh, that's the game that I'm trying to play right now is experiences, not things. You mentioned that. I'm just wondering if, if you've been uh, going down that road or if there's any, you know, really cool experiences that you've had as a result of this, uh, journey that you're on at the moment. I'd say two, two things come up for me. So one is the, the outward and the second is the inner experiences. So on the outer experiences, I just shared a blog post, I think two weeks ago, uh, I think it was titled why some experiences should not be shared. <laughs> and I talk about how I went skydiving a few years ago and I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> um, and for me, it was a- that's brave. Like uh, you jumped out of a plane and actually did not tell anyone that in this era, that's pretty, <laughs> pretty impressive. Yeah. And that's, that, that's, that's the exact point of it. And for, for me, you know, I had a fear of heights and that was an important experiment. Uh, there are a few others leading up to it to help myself with that fear that I had. And it was a really meaningful thing personally, because I was scared of heights. And, you know, as I've been scared of heights for a long time, I thought one day, maybe I'll jump out of a plane and that'll mean I'm less scared of heights. And I did, and I am less scared of heights. Um, But what I learned, and the reason I didn't want to share it with anybody until now, like two years later, (laughs) was I feel that when we experience something, if we share it, then we stop experiencing it and we experience other people's reaction to our experience versus the experience itself. And then we lose that connection to how, what we might find meaningful in it. Like let's say I'm cooking uh, a meal in my apartment and I really enjoy the art of cooking and using different ingredients and experimenting with different spices and then enjoying the meal. The moment I try and like capture that meal and tell a friend or my mom would be proud of me or somebody else about it, then that's all of a sudden changed my experience and I've lost my own personal connection with it. So that's the first thing that, that comes up is like experiences are valuable and uh, my advice or kind of the seed I'll plant is like go, go, go have experiences with your friends, your family alone. And, uh, and learn to not share them and you'll find even more meaning from them. Yeah. The, uh, something that pops in my mind as you say that is, um, I went to see a concert recently and I pulled out my phone and I took some pictures during one song just to try to capture my daughter's reaction to what was going on, which was pretty cool. Um, but then the other 20 songs, I, my phone was away. I didn't record anything, didn't take any pictures. I was just trying to be there at the concert and I was amazed that, some people like lived and experienced the concert through their phones, like right next to me the whole time they were recording and watching. And, um, uh, it just blows my mind that, uh, you know, you're in this venue, you're in front of this incredible artist, you're listening to this amazing music. There's some incredible and, you know, things happening all around you and you're pulled into your device in that moment. It's kind of, uh, I was, and again, I didn't spend too much time on it because I was like deliberately controlling my attention to focus on the artist. But it was, it was pretty, it was pretty fascinating to watch. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what's under under that is is intention. So I think it's totally fine to like experience the world through your phone if if you understand that's what you're doing. Um, I think like what you're commenting on and what we observe in current 
culture is we are doing our relationship, we're not aware of our relationship with technology and how it's impacting our experience of the world and our experience of our relationships with people and our communications and our friendships. Um, I, I think the bigger, the deeper thing here is, is awareness and doing things from a place of awareness and intention. And if, if we're doing it with awareness, it's fine. Like it's fine to kind of do anything with awareness it's hard to like be mean to someone with awareness that I'm being mean to them. <laughs> it's hard to like feel angry towards someone if I'm aware like that there's anger happening right now. I feel awareness mm -hmm. like cuts through everything. Once we're aware and mindfulness is a useful tool to cultivate awareness, but it's not the only one. I don't think it's, I don't think everybody needs to, to do mindfulness. I may have before, but now I've learned that like, I think it's awareness is, is an important ingredient to, to live by. It's a value. It's a belief I have now. And uh, once we're aware, then we know why we're doing things. How do you cultivate awareness? I agree with you, by the way, on everything. I'm all over uh, intention versus compulsion. It's been big on my mind lately when it comes to social media and controlling your attention. I remember historically as an athlete growing up, that was one of the things that we were taught repeatedly is to control your attention, to keep it on what you're doing in the instant and not get distracted by things that don't have anything to do with the performance of the training that you're doing at the moment. So um, I got away from it uh, for many, many years, probably decades, and then have gotten back into an exploration of that more recently. But um, is there anything that you, you mentioned not mindfulness as one tool to cultivate awareness. Are there others or is there a, uh, how is your practice in that space evolved and, and what have you learned? So a few ingredients, I'd say the, the first one is, uh, I mean, so actually let me first, I'll just describe some of my practices. So that'll give some tactical example, practical examples, but then I'll just speak about what I've learned in, um, a bit more as a, as a teacher in this regard. So uh, I, I meditate quite a bit. Uh, it's become fully ingrained in my lifestyle and started four years ago. And I liken it to keeping the place tidy. The place can be a physical place in a literal sense or, um, or our mind as a place. So the daily meditation for me is like taking out the kitchen trash if you don't do it after a few days, it starts to get stinky and smelly and flies appear. So do it every day. Uh, it doesn't take more than, it doesn't take a lot of time. Uh, and then on, on a weekly basis, I'll, I'll do a longer meditation or a group meditation. And I liken that to like tidying up my place and arranging things and keeping them organized. And if you don't do that after a few weeks, then things start to feel disorganized. And then I'll do a retreat experience and I get come back to retreats um, if it's of interest, but the retreat is like a deep scrubbing of the place. And the retreat is really valuable if you've been taking out the kitchen trash every day and if I've been you know, keeping the place tidy every week. So that's been a nice um, framework or hierarchy of like daily, weekly, and then either monthly or quarterly retreat practice that I've been practicing. I've been doing this now for like almost four years and I feel it's sustainable and it's, given me a very strong grounding amidst having a global business and having family all over the world and friends all over the world and, you know, volunteering quite a bit and a number of kind of commitments and responsibilities in my life. I'm single. I don't have kids. I'm not 
you know, uh, like in your, in your position, I don't have those responsibilities, um, but I do have other responsibilities, but the practice has helped. Kids are easy, man. No big deal. <laughs> Go for it. Do it as many as you can. <laughs> um, but, Won't change your life a bit. It's all good. You're the first person to say that. <laughs> I'm so yeah, lying right now. Oh my God. Um, I would, I'd love to hear about the retreat because it's something that I've been contemplating. Um, I've had some good conversations with people that have uh, done some retreats that have been phenomenal for them, life-changing in a positive way. I've also spoken to a few people that uh, have done them and it has been the opposite of of helpful. In fact, it may have even made the situation worse. So I'd love your your insights on on what you did, what you experienced, what it was like, and and how it might be beneficial. A re- retreat is really a useful tool to cultivate awareness, and an important thing to understand that I've learned about awareness is that awareness does not discriminate. So awareness shines a light. That light gets shined not only on things that are pleasant, but also things that are unpleasant. We become aware of good, and we become aware of bad. So if I use that in a in a in a real world sense. Um, we think the world is a more dangerous place today because we're more aware of the violence and disasters that are occurring. We know when we look at the data, the world is not a more dangerous place today. It's actually the safest place it's ever been. But what's happened is we've become more aware of the violence and disasters that are happening, but we haven't increased our acceptance of the things we're becoming aware of. So a true um, retreat and mindfulness practice uh, can't stop at simply cultivating awareness. Um, I've done that, and actually, it's very, it's very, very risky because you'll become aware of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think those that uh, may have had negative experiences in meditation or retreat, um, it's because of that. Um, because you become aware, you surface up things that you weren't expecting to, and then you may not be ready to to, to process and, and work through. So, the second part of the practice is acceptance. Like awareness will heighten once you go down this path, but then uh, learning how to strengthen the ability to accept is um, very important. That's half of the work. Half of the work is awareness. The other half is acceptance. Um, so then on, on retreat, uh, retreat, I, I recommend, uh, so my experience with it started with meditation retreats and yoga retreats, which are very structured. So I've done, you know, the 10-day silent retreats that people may have heard of. Uh, I've done lots of yoga retreats. And I've done some mindful leadership retreats, which are really, uh, really interesting. Um, so the retreats, really what they were useful for me was a, a chance to really disconnect, a chance to be with like-valued people. But most importantly, it gave me structure. And when somebody's looking after your stay and your food and your schedule, you can start to go deeper inside. That was my experience. And I'm, my, my thoughts were not consumed with where's my next, what's my next meal? What's my next form of physical exercise? Um, what am I doing this morning? Um, that structure allowed me to, to take, you know, deeper thoughts that I was becoming aware of and, and, you know, really like process them. My retreats have now evolved to be a more self-retreat, which I don't recommend initially to people, but after you've done some structured retreats, I do recommend it. I'm trying something different this year as an experiment to do a monthly self-retreat. And you'll see a lot of my blog posts uh, are, are, are born 
out of these self-retreats. And that's where I'm basically taking three to four days over a long weekend, once a month, and disconnecting from every person in my life. Um, sometimes I'm somewhere different. Um, sometimes I'm not. And it's giving myself the space to, to really go deep inside, use all the mindfulness tools, and really not have any responsibilities, have nothing to do, except to, to learn more about myself. It's interesting that you run a tech company. You're deeply embedded in that world. That is your life. And you're able to take these long weekends to do a self-retreat. And I'm a huge fan of one weekend a month, unplugging, disconnecting, recovering, regenerating, taking that time. At this moment, I like to spend those weekends as much as possible with my family because I travel a lot and I'm away. Uh, But to do so in a very you know, direct all of my attention as much as possible towards my kids. But it's cool that you've been able to separate using technology to build a career and have a positive impact in the world and yet totally unplug and go deep inwards with these practices. It's been, it started out of a place of necessity. If I'm like, to be fully, fully honest, is about seven years ago, so I'm three years into the business, business not really proven, doesn't have product market fit, burning a lot of money, um, 24, 25 years old. <laughs> um, so still learning a lot. Um, still learning a lot today though. And I got to this point where like, I wasn't sleeping well, uh, stomach cramps from stress and feeling uh, mentally very challenged to the point that the signs are showing up in my physical presence. And not really choosing to talk to anybody about it. Um, I don't know if it was out of stigma or shame or just not, the thought didn't even cross my mind uh, to talk to anybody about it. And is this one moment that was like, this is getting to be a lot and I'm not sleeping well. And I took email off of my phone. And the next day I felt a lot better. And the next day I slept finally. And then I didn't tell anybody I took email off my phone and it just became a little secret of mine as a self-care mechanism. And then a week later and then a month later and then a year later, I was like, no, this is, this is the norm and this, this works. And then a few years later, you know, I started to practice mindfulness and then that helped me uh, deepen my conviction on kind of using technology versus being used by it. So I've got lots of tech practices. We won't have time to get through them all around just being mindful about using technology. There's a theme we're seeing now around digital wellness. I have a lot of friends working in the digital wellness space. So I'm excited that you know some of the things that I've done on a sample size of one, there's other people that are passionate about helping make those practices and ideas and tools available um, for, for everyone. Yeah, I think we were at a conference because I remember you very showing me. Yeah, I moved my mail app to you know screen number ten. You have to swipe right ten times to get to your to your mail app. Like it was way deep buried uh, in your phone. I think you'd also deleted some social media apps at that point in time. And um, I, I very very consciously remember you showing me that. So that was, that's pretty cool that that. Um, it sort of began from a place of necessity and and that was a spark that led you down a very different 
road from what's happening in the world right yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I am deep in digital media. That's what Polo, the business I run, is in. And when you know how the sausage is made, you should be careful about it. Um, I mean, with, with, with a tool like Facebook, like you are not the user of it. You are the product. They are selling you to somebody else. And like they are not serving you, you are serving them. That's not their intention, but that's the reality. And that's the reality that you know I've become aware of professionally because it's the industry that I, I work in. Um, but it's a reality that, that most consumers haven't had the fortune uh, to, to understand. Mm-hmm. How do you cultivate curiosity? Reading has been reading without a purpose. It's not just reading, but reading without a purpose. I don't, I don't read business books. <laughs> um, apologize if you've written some, Greg. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> not yet. Uh, I, uh, I, uh, so, so once again, like awareness, like it was literally uh, three years ago, I was meditating one day and then for some, it might have been after a meal and I was like, I'm curious about taste and like, why do I find some things tasty and others not so tasty, but my sister would find it tasty. So I rent and read a few books about the science of taste. (laughs) And that was really interesting. And I learned all these things I didn't know. And then I got interested about sleep, not with any intention to change my sleep, but just to learn about it. And I read six books on sleep. Um, uh, I will like, I will plug one book that, I really, really have enjoyed uh, that Sapiens and the second one, Homo Deus, uh, really, really um, intellectually stimulating, um, kept my kept my attention over several months, dominated a lot of my personal conversations. So for me, that's what comes up right away is, is reading without a purpose. Cool. I was just uh, interviewing Neil Prisca yesterday, and he wrote the book of awesome. And one of his uh, quotes from the podcast, which I just loved, was that interesting people read interesting books. And that's been, uh, he said, almost carbon copy exactly what you just said, curiosity, reading. Um, He aims for a book almost every two days now. Like He's really pushing the limits. He's built a whole podcast around it. Uh, so it's, it's fascinating that the, uh, you, you might think that because you're CEO founder of a tech-based company, global, uh, huge responsibilities that you don't have time to read yet. It's the people that have, uh, those types of roles and responsibilities that make the time to read. And it's cool that you've done that as well. Yeah. Yeah. What does journaling look like for you? Cause you mentioned that earlier, uh, in, um, this chat and, Again, that's a very. Cons- I'm starting to see some pretty recurrent patterns amongst uh, the guests that have been on on the show and people that I've I've been reading about. Journaling seems to be a very consistent practice for people. Uh, I'd love to know what does your practice look like. What do you find it beneficial for? Um, has your practice evolved? Uh, anything that you that you feel like sharing about journaling? Yeah, jur- jur- journaling has changed my life. There's three practices I'll speak of. So one is what we think of journaling as uh, a reflection book. So I have a a kind of a reflection book and that's something I'll take with me on retreat and I'll write in it every few weeks. And that's the deeper insightful things that are dated and I'll read through those every few months. And um, that's when I, when I think of something, I'm deeply personal, super confidential, uh, safe space for me to share with my future self 
the insights from my present self. So that's the reflection journal. Uh, uh, second, which started as a, a gratitude journal, which is one line a day, and we all have time to write one sentence a day. It takes about six seconds. I've timed it. And, but that takes about maybe 10 seconds to like sit and see what am I grateful for. And the first few months, it's like the same things and the obvious things. But after that is when it gets really interesting. Because really, so it takes that much yeah. time to start to get beyond just the superficial day to day observations. And you start to become grateful cool. for things. And then the one prompt that I'd, I'd, I'd give, you know, your future selves listening to the show is like, when you come across those things that are not obvious, then ask yourself, have I shared with that person or have I shared this idea with anybody? Uh, and then maybe that's a bit of encouragement to share. And then the last technique, which has been the most influential for me, is morning pages. Uh, Julia Cameron, author of The Artist's Way, uh, came up with that technique 30 years ago. I discovered it about three and a half years ago. It's a free writing technique where you take two to three pieces of paper, usually in the morning, and you take a pen. It's very important to do it by hand, not on a laptop. And you just start writing. And the two rules are that once you start writing, you don't stop writing. You don't pause. You don't stop to think. You simply write. If I don't know what to write, I'm writing, I don't know what to write, or blah, 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 blah. And it has to make, it doesn't have to make any sense. The handwriting does not have to be legible because the second rule is that you throw it out as soon as you're done writing. You don't keep it. You don't read it. You don't reflect on it. Nobody will ever see it. Most importantly, you will never see it. So then this technique is designed to bypass this editor and the sensor that we have. Like even as I'm speaking right now to you, Greg, I, there's a part of my brain that's editing and censoring what I'm saying. And that's very useful to operate in a society with other human beings. <laughs> uh, most of us that live in the U.S., there's one person here that may not be doing that as much these days. <laughs> um, but generally, like censoring is a, a human trait that we need to function in society. But when it comes to introspection, understanding ourselves, that censoring gets in the way of us discovering our own truth. So through this technique and practice... I've made hiring decisions. I've made firing decisions. I've made big strategy shifts. I've made a lot of personal choices, like a lot of things. I mean, I, I say I make the decision. I probably had already made the decision, but I wasn't aware that I'd made the decision. It just it taps into a stream of consciousness and a free flow of thoughts. I do it probably every other day. So in the last three and a half years, I've probably done it now six, five, six hundred times. It's... Um, it's life-changing. It's a form of self-therapy. So I highly, highly recommend it. I have a blog post that just explains what I just said. Um, morning pages, it's a technique that's well understood. And uh, I wish somebody told me about it sooner. So now I'm telling all of you about it. That's uh, it actually leads me to one of my questions I, I, I really like asking. And, and that is, um, as you mentioned, I wish that I had learned this earlier. You know, if you could go back to the beginning of when you launched Polar, what would you tell yourself? Um, is there anything that you would that you would tell yourself to do differently, or is there like a key insight you, that you think would have just accelerated your life in in the right direction? Uh, anything that you'd like to sort of, as much as you use journaling to talk to your future self, uh, is there anything that you wish you could say to your pre, your past self? Two two words. Everything changes. 
It's something I've really internalized and over the last couple of years. And it, it, it has the power to disarm any emotion that I may be feeling. And we often feel negative emotions like anger, fear, stress, anxiety, the strongest. And in those moments when I may be feeling frustrated or anxious or stressed, a portion of those, now I'm, I, this thought comes up, this will change, everything changes. The impact of that emotion uh, lessens. It doesn't disappear, but it lessens. And from that lessening of that emotion, I'm able to be more present, be a little more logical, probably respond versus react to the situation. And it is the one uh, belief that I wish, you know, 20 years ago, you know, I had, I had learned and it's one I'm still learning to this day. Cool. I want to bring this uh, chat full circle at the very beginning. You mentioned that these practices have helped you to become a more mindful leader and you feel like this inner work that you've been doing has had an impact on the people around you at Polar. Can you let me know a little bit more about this, uh, this mindful leader concept and where you're at with that? I think leadership in, in business is, uh, I was, uh, I was interviewed by, uh, a fellow Torontonian who's writing a, a, a book and she's interviewing a hundred CEOs. And she asked me like, who are some CEOs that inspire you? And, and my answer was not very many. And I think today in, in business and leadership in business, we treat our, our people and we treat our customers, our investors, our different stakeholders as like assets and resources that we need to, to use, almost like cows we need to take milk from versus seeing them as like flowers in a garden that we need to tend for and take care of. So the relationship between a leader and the stakeholders. So in a business context, I think it's customers, team, and shareholders. Uh, I think that's changed quite a bit for me uh, as I've adopted this as part of my identity as being a mindful leader. So with the team, most importantly, that means listening. That means becoming curious. That means being open to feedback. That means uh, empathizing. That means recognizing that people are whole and Somebody might be behaving in a certain way and um, maybe there's something else going on in their personal life that I'm not privy to. I don't know what that is. I don't need to know what that is. Maybe I can just give them the space um, if I see that already acting in a way that's not consistent with how they normally act or in a way how I expect them to act. With customers, it's not going into a conversation with an agenda. <laughs> it's starting by listening, like, what are their problems? And then maybe my job is to solve their problems versus sell my product. Uh, and then with, with shareholders and investors, it's feeling comfortable being vulnerable, saying this is where I need help. These are the things that I'm stressed about. This is what's not working. And help me out here. Um, so those are a couple of, couple of uh, examples of mindful leadership in practice. And I'm, it's, a, it's a new part of my identity that I'm 
passionate about and, and discovering. Uh, I mean, there's another literal definition of it, I guess, which is encouraging and supporting those with an interest in mindfulness as a leader in a company, uh, which we do. Like, um, there's a wellness and balance theme at Polar. So there's a daily meditation in our Toronto office. There's a weekly global meditation. Our board meetings start with meditation. We meditate with our clients. Like, it is deeply ingrained in our business culture, which I think allows people to be more present more trusting and just feel safe as they should and they deserve to feel. How do you do meditation with your clients? You know, I work in the advertising media and publishing industry. <laughs> you could say like one of the least mindful industries. So maybe that's why it's worked, you know, and been very appreciated um, because it's, it's, it's uh, people are very, very open to it. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, uh, it's been largely with people that I've known for a while, like customers that we've been doing business with for many years. So they know me personally. Uh, it comes from a place of sharing my passion. It's, I'm really passionate about this. I would love to share it with you. Are you open to that? And if you're genuine and authentic and they like you and they're like, yeah, this is something that you're passionate about. I'm like, sure. So Oftentimes, we'll start, we'll start a meeting with a five or 10-minute lightly guided meditation or even just like a two-minute mindful moment to check in. And it's a chance to like drop whatever all of us were carrying before um, and just mentally arrive. Physically, we've arrived, but just mentally arrive in the room. There is a trust element too in vulnerability. Like when you all sit in a room together with your eyes closed, you're signaling, I trust you. And mm. trust is an important ingredient to do business, if not the most important. <laughs> yeah, I know it's, yeah, I know it's huge in education and sport and business, family, everywhere. It's, it's, it's massive. Uh, final question I have for you. It's kind of fun. I noticed that your headshot on the Polar website, when I mouse over it, you turn into Batman. <laughs> I don't, I don't have a fun story about that. I didn't actually, Who yeah, some, some of the team chose it because I probably ignored the request to choose it. So if you were to ask me what the superhero was, I would actually wouldn't be able to tell you. Um, Got it. That's fine. Yeah. The one, the one, the one story I will share actually, and this is probably a nice final thought is I was in uh, San Francisco a few weeks ago. I was in an Uber and, uh, with my driver, which I always make a point to talk with them because they're so interesting. Um, we got into a pretty philosophical conversation and then he shared with me something his father had shared with him. He said, whenever you see a picture, picture, who's the first person you look for? And that really, really has stuck with me and really starting to like, just become aware of how much, do I or do we spend on ourselves versus on others? So tell me a little bit about how people can catch up with you online if they want to follow what you're up to um, on the find focus uh, concept. Where can people connect with you and learn a little bit more? A few things. So Polar is the business I run. Uh, Polar.me is where you can learn more about that. I, I joined the board at, at CAMH, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, last year. So that's, that's a big part of my volunteer work. And you can learn more about CAMH by going to camh.ca. 
my blog where I, I write a lot about my own journey and experiences around mindfulness, uh, leadership, and technology culture is findfocus.today. And you can email me simply k at findfocus.today. Uh, and then lastly, I, I am spending a lot of time looking at the intersection of mental health and technology. And it's an area I've become passionate about. I'm advising, supporting, mentoring, um, connecting uh, with quite a few people in this space. And if it's an area of interest to you, then I definitely am curious to connect with you. Amazing. Thanks for taking the time, buddy. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Greg. Nice to see you. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you joining me for this episode of the podcast. Your time is incredibly valuable and spending it with me is just mind-blowing. I, I thank you so much for doing that. It's great. If you want to support the show, if you enjoyed that segment and you want more, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and on Google Play. That makes a huge difference for us. And then also, if you can let me know what you think. All of my social media are at Dr. Greg Wells. And of course, if you can share this with anyone in your network, it would be greatly appreciated as well. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. And we'll speak to you again really, really soon.